with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thank you for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I have a very special guest, and you're going to get to know this gentleman pretty well over the coming, actually, it's probably going to be a couple months. We have this really cool series that we are going to be introducing in the Phronesis podcast, but I need to introduce you to this person real quick. You've met him before, if you're a longtime listener. It's Dr. Jonathan Reams. He has an insatiable curiosity about the essence of human nature and how to cultivate this essence in the service of leadership. He's a professor at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, where he teaches and researches leadership development, coaching, and counseling. He serves as the editor-in-chief of the Integral Review, a transdisciplinary and transcultural journal for new thought, praxis, and research. He is also a co-founder of the European Center for Leadership Practice and the Center for Transformative Leadership. Jonathan's PhD is in leadership studies from Gonzaga University. Jonathan practices the cultivation of leadership through consulting and leadership development program design and delivery. He brings awareness-based technology to this work, focusing on how the inner workings of human nature can develop leadership capacities for today's complex challenges. There's plenty of those. Jonathan, we need you. Welcome, sir. I saw you a couple months ago in Washington, D.C. at the International Leadership Association Conference. How have you been, sir? I've been great, Scott. That was a real blast getting to hang out in person and really deepen the kind of tentacles of connection. Yes, I I like that. It sounds a little spooky, but kind of cool. The tentacles of connection. We had never met in person. And all of a sudden, I'm walking down the hallway to my room and I see this three-dimensional figure that I'd only known in two dimensions. (laughs) That's right. And it was very spooky, too, because I thought I just had come out of my room and thought, okay, I'm going to go look for Scott. And you came around the corner. (laughs) Well, I am so excited to frame up and, and help listeners understand what we are up to. You know, you have edited this volume called Maturing Leadership. And for listeners, really, uh, the next eight episodes are going to be with authors from this volume. It's an important volume. It's an important topic. And I believe, as I've had these conversations for the last couple of years with scholars and practitioners from around the world, I think it's probably foundational to our work, this human development conversation. 
So Jonathan, maybe if you would, uh, what's the impetus? What's the source of this project, Maturing Leadership? Oh, I think there's many sources. You know, it's a big, deep sigh, because in a way, it's a kind of life work and project. I uh, got into graduate studies at Gonzaga in the leadership program, really wanting to bring together my kind of personal background in consciousness development and spiritual practice and find some way to connect that to the world. And leadership studies jumped out as a place where people were talking about these kind of things. And there's something about leading that requires you to kind of go beyond yourself, to stretch your boundaries and challenge yourself. And that requires some kind of maturity. And we all have the experience of bosses who are not so mature and the impact they have. And we know that this is an ongoing issue in general terms. But then I wanted to look at, well, what are some more specific ways of looking at that? And then I came across adult development theory in general as a more specific way of talking about how does consciousness evolve? And then I'll tell a short story. So at the ILA in Barcelona in 2015, sure. I was approached by one of the uh, publishers because they said they troll through the abstracts and look for interesting things and talk to people if they could write an article or something. So he was talking to me and we went for a walk. And as we talked, it became clear that there was more than just an article worth of topic here. And I said, look, you know, the field of combining adult development and leadership has had some pioneers, some of the people you've had on the show already, like Bill Torbert and Keith Eigel and Carl Kuhnert, uh, many more. But it hasn't gotten a cornerstone of credibility in the academic field. Mm. And so putting together an academic anthology seemed like a step forward in giving some legitimacy to say it's not just, you know, woo-woo stuff for a few marginal people. There's actually a body of work around this. I looked at their book proposal and was highly intimidated. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I can never do this. And then a, a couple of years later, you know, the ILA's Building Bridges series invites proposals. I put in a proposal for this because, oh, maybe that's easier. They know me, you know, that'll be friendly. And it didn't get accepted. But the publisher, Emerald, said, hey, but we're actually interested in this outside of that series. And so we made a deal. And I basically just tapped the shoulders of a number of people that I'd known in the field for a while and said, hey, would you be willing to contribute something? And there was a couple of year process as it often is. And now we have it out in paperback even. Yes. And, and it's an incredible resource. And I think Really, for listeners, this episode—the purpose of this episode—I don't. I have. I personally have not come across someone who has the depth and breadth of knowledge about adult development that that Jonathan does. Even spending time with him in Washington D.C., going deeper into some of these conversations, where I'm feeling like I'm in the deep end. I think for listeners, these next eight episodes, they're going to challenge listeners in some ways. They've challenged me in a lot of ways. I think they challenge all of us because it's a gnarly topic in a lot of ways without, as you said, some of that clarity. But I think that's also the really, really nice opportunity. This episode is really about providing listeners with a bit of a primer so they can go into future episodes really having a base level understanding of this field of adult development. You and I were talking at ILA. I'm excited. I, I kind of have a concept for a new set of interviews where maybe we do some 101s with some thought leaders, right? I'd love to hear Susan Komavez talk about some of her her theories from a 101 perspective, or Ron Riggio or Bruce Avolio talk about transformational leadership from a 101 standpoint. So this is a little bit of an adult development 101 in 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the challenge you've given me, Scott. <laughs> I think that that's one of the aims is to do that, but also to then link that to uh, some of the chapters in the book, just so people get a kind of high level overview of 
what's the basic foundational theory from that context and then how is it applied in relation to different aspects of leadership yes i think that's great where do we begin jonathan <laughs> well in the dim misty past no i you know i've i've given various talks on this subject and the concept of maturity or development is perennial okay so you can go back to plato and plato's caves and notions of somehow our view of the world evolving into more and more enlightened views you can see this in the enlightenment era so people like goethe shaftesbury nietzsche also wrote about this in a way that you can see almost exact parallels to some of the modern models there were influences then from that into some of the conceptions that have influenced various parts of modern society but in more recent times so let's say 100 120 years we had people like james mark baldwin in the us who brought out notions of subject object and lines of development and all these kind of like what are the ways we can describe this we had jean piaget who is you know relatively well known and studied how does our structures of meaning making our structures of knowing things in the world evolve as children and then people like lawrence kohlberg or others took this up and said how does this apply to moral development and how does it apply in adulthood and then people like robert keegan built on that integrating essentially piaget and freud what are psychodynamic models of development because freud has a developmental model there are stages that children go through and there's principles involved in that that keegan took and linked with piaget's and said here's something that can inform us about this and a brief story i remember we had in over our heads for class one night in my doctoral program and i remember we complained bitterly because it, we can't skim the book <laughs> no and no, what is this guy talking about you know it, <laughs> it it's because and and i think this goes back to why you say this is so important it's the air that we breathe the water that we swim in it's it's all around us it is the essence of our experience and because of that it's often invisible to us mm. it's taken as given it's just the way we see the world and that's how it is and keegan tries to lift this up and make it visible for us well and why is that critical to leadership give us a quick preview well <laughs> I think that we've all seen and there's plenty of literature that says that self-awareness is a key foundation for good leadership because if you're not aware of your own shadows your own tendencies you will act them out in unconscious ways and project them onto others and create unintended consequences. Mm. So you may have great ideas but if how you act on them is filtered or colored through some of these limitations then you wonder well why doesn't it work the way i thought that's just one of the most beautiful ways i've i've ever heard that communicated jonathan that was wonderful that was absolutely wonderful i think it's been a very succinct nice way you helped me and listeners understand why this is critical to this conversation so as you think about the book what are some of those theories that are utilized in book chapters that people should have some level of awareness i mean you mentioned some some really big names whether that's piaget or freud what do we have to know from a foundational level and we're going to provide just so you know listeners we're going to provide you with some links in the show notes jonathan you have a wonderful paper that takes people through the landscape that we could link in the show notes so people can do a little deeper dive for those who are interested in doing so But what do you think? Sure. So what what I thought might be helpful is because a lot of the chapter authors go a little bit deeper into and we're not going to be asking them to provide intros to the theory that they're using, more focus on the application because that's more interesting. Yep. What are the nuances and facets? So for those who aren't familiar with these, we thought it might be good to give some examples of 
what are these theories talking about? What are the basic principles? Nice. I've explained this in different kinds of ways, but I, I think one of the easiest things to start with is this example around mathematics. Okay. We all kind of can either remember or have kids where we've seen this, that before, you know, the age of three or four, arithmetic isn't really in their court. Numbers are fluid. Things are magical and mythical because the structure <laughs> of their meaning making, you know, their their stuffed animal is suddenly a dragon, and you know that you cover a blanket over your head and you're in a foreign land. And yes, so, so that fluidity to reality, which is fantastic imaginations, but doesn't lend itself to logical structure and logical reasoning. So something happens around five or six years of age where you move into this structure where you can suddenly teach arithmetic. One plus one equals two makes sense. And then you can learn the reverse and that two minus one equals one. Oh, and now you can reverse operations. And then you can eventually, oh, and you can do multiplication. And there's this developmental sequence that you learn concepts and principles of arithmetic. Mm. Now, at the same time, you don't teach an eight-year-old algebra. Yes. Because algebra requires taking any number for X. Mm. But at that age, no, it needs to be a specific number. It needs to be a concrete number. So Piaget talked about pre-operational thinking, concrete operational thinking, where there are two apples, not X number of apples. But he then talked about formal operational thinking, which we could call abstract reasoning, where the ability to think more broadly and generally comes into view. Yes. So that's an example of how this principle of our epistemology, our, the structure of our meaning-making, evolves in ways. And I've got another example I'll use a little later. Now, what we can also look at is, for instance, we mentioned Robert Keegan, and I thought, you know, one of the highlights of this podcast series for me was you explaining Robert Keegan to Henry Mintzberg. You did a great <laughs> job of it. So it may feel repetition for people, but in the context of this, we could say Keegan is looking at what is the holding environment that is the air we breathe and swim in and don't notice what holds us in the world and what can we take as an object and reflect on it and operate on it. Jonathan, would you talk about subject object really quickly, just for a moment, just because I, I yeah. know you're, you've used that phrasing a couple of times now, just for listeners. I think the, the most foundational, the way he starts out is, you know, the fetus is the holding environment is the womb. Mm. Life is supported through all these physical, biological ways in the womb. Now, we we know now from more modern research that, you know, the, the mood of the mother, the kind of dietary intake, all these things have an effect on the development of the fetus. The holding environment, yeah. It's the holding environment. So it's shaping the way that life is evolving. Now you come out into the world and your mother and or father is your primary caregiver. They provide the world. They hold you safe. They allow you to start learning how to function in a body, to how to move your hands and how to find you know, your teeth and you know all these kind of things. <laughs> so, so at this stage, that's Keegan's first stage. So you're you are subject to your needs and your reflexes become an object. You can kind of look at and work on your reflexes as an infant. But if you're hungry, you just cry and you're hungry. You can't delay gratification. You're subject to that feeling. As you evolve, at some point, you can have this delay of gratification and you are no longer subject to your needs. You can say, I'm hungry, mom. And she said, dinner's in half an hour and you can wait. Mm. You now can take your own need and reflect on it as an object and make choices about it. And Keegan talks about this then as the kind of imperial self, I believe, the, the egocentric self, because what's happening here is your world is 
very close to you. It's how you make up things. You don't really have much of a perspective. Others are kind of two-dimensional outside of maybe your immediate family, but even then, the way you conceptualize them is somewhat flat. Your own world is just starting to unfold. Somewhere in the uh, early teenage years, maybe, or somewhere in there, you start to bump up against the limits of it all about me and realize that other people have feelings too and you need to take them into consideration. Mm. And you start becoming socialized into peer relationships, family relationships. You, You grow into this where you take your own ego desires and can suspend them and make choices about them in relation to building your identity around peers. Well, and I imagine, Jonathan, back to the holding environment concept. I mean, I have an image of a tree in my mind. And imagine a tree, one tree is they've got wonderful soil, just the right amount of sunlight, a fairly mild environment. And yet you have a seed that is the exact same tree placed in another context where that holding environment might be harsher, the weather may be much more destructive, the soil isn't as rich, and you're going to have two different holding environments that are going to impact that development, correct? Correct. I think the thing that's important, in my view at least, is that impact or influence, but not determine. Okay, okay. Because I I can remember some research when I was not even in grad school yet, but around resilience. And there's something about, you know, kids in the inner city where the holding environment is not necessarily robust, but they somehow transcend it. So there's often something within the individual that also has a role to play in how they go through and relate to their holding environment. Great. But it definitely has an impact and shapes how you internalize meaning. And then we we get into where teenagers start to grow into adults, and then this notion of having, as Keegan says, a socialized mind, where you're very concerned about and build your identity around influences from the outside, whether it's a boss, a teacher, a friend, whatever, these external models really are what help you, because you need something to go by. You, You don't just come up with it out of nowhere. So you internalize it. But at some point in life, you're asked to do more than that. You're asked to step outside of that and take those influences and object and make choices about how you would like to write your own script in this context. And then Keegan talks about this self-authoring. So for instance, if I grew up in a family where we have liberal Democrats who are members of unions, and I've grown up my whole life that that is good and right and correct. At this self-authoring stage, I may still value unions and and appreciate certain, but I also might be able to be critical of certain elements of it or think think independently of what my family's perspectives were. We could say that about faith. We could say that about our communities, politics a number of different topics. I kind of, as, as you said, self-author my own perspective on the world. That's right. And so you build your own kind of value system, in a sense, and how you relate to those former influences starts to have more flexibility and fluidity. You can pick and choose and reconstruct in a way. At a certain point, and this is what they see in the research is less common, is people can outgrow this and start to actually have what they call a self-transforming mind, which means that you have an ability to recreate, deconstruct your sense of self-authored identity and recreate it for other contexts. Mm. So you have more dynamic flexibility. So a classic case of this uh, former friend of mine who was at Cisco wrote this paper about the innovator's dilemma. You have this whole thing where CEOs have a challenge because you've got the bread and butter operations that need to be stable and need a certain type of leadership style and and that to maintain that stability. 
but you need a different kind of style for being entrepreneurial. And how do you combine both of those mindsets in one mind? And Clayton Christensen was brilliant. I think Kodak, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. And this is maybe a good example. And I am i don't know the details, but it, we can hypothesize very easily that failure of leadership was the failure to be able to switch to another mindset, understand the need to read the signals and adapt to an emerging context and to stay within my ideology of what's right and what I'm conditioned into and run over the cliff. Well, and each of these stages, because if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan, a certain percentage of adults are at stage two, according to Keegan. Was it around 7 to 10% roughly? Something like that. Maybe half of adults make it to stage three. And, you know, then there's some other set of... A third or something that may... Yeah. And of course, these are not hard and fast levels. There's lots of nuance in between. And one of the things that we'll get into in some of the other um, authors' chapters, too, is this doesn't mean you always act or perform in the same way. So you may make meaning or sense of it at your best in a certain way, but in different contexts, you may act better or worse. Mm. So your performance can vary. And that goes into, so what I'd like to do then is give a shorter overview of a couple of other of these kind of theoretical threads, because that's Robert Keegan in depth. For all of these that you're about to discuss, there's very real ramifications for leadership. If I give someone who's at stage two authority, well, they're making sense of the world in a very, very different way than that person who's at stage three or four. Sure. So I had somebody just yesterday that I was talking with that was so frustrated in their workplace because their leader was clearly not able to understand or take into consideration enough of the concerns of that team and organization to really hold the the people in the team in place. They couldn't create a container for them. They couldn't lead them. They were continually reducing the issues to overly simplistic formulas. So that's a, a big consequence. So one of the other strands or models that came out of Freud's work, Harry Stack Sullivan, and then Jane Lovinger, who, and this is, there's a kind of common pattern with this where she was looking at women's post-World War II experience. And as she interviewed people, she noticed differences in the way they talked about their experience. So you observe a phenomena. And then she tried to understand, well, how could we categorize these differences? She started looking at this and then bootstrapping a methodology to say, well, how could we calibrate or measure this? And so you have these sentence completion tests where you give people a sentence stem and people fill it out. And what you see is that as people mature or bring more considerations or perspectives into their thinking, they're able to show that in the way they answer a question. She did this Washington University sentence completion test, which was then worked on with Bill Torbert, Suzanne Cook-Greuter. There's a HBR article, The Seven Transformations of Leadership. That's one of the, It's in their top 10 list because it talks about, well, what happens? We notice a slightly different slicing than Keegan, slightly different names, but we see that some people are just opportunists. Hmm. The only way they can look at the world is it's kind of a jungle out there, and I got to grab whatever opportunities and might makes right, and all these kind of things, and that's that's their mindset. And then they get to the kind of limits of that, and they say, "Oh God, we got to take other people into account," and they become more diplomats. They're great at making things smooth among the team and taking care of everybody's needs, but they don't necessarily contribute real depth of knowledge, which is more the next level, the expert, Hmm. where you individuate yourself by having specialized knowledge. Okay. You now go beyond the kind of my way or the highway and opportunism and or just smoothing the waters and being diplomatic. And you say, no, here's some truth. Here's some knowledge. Here's something that can 
help us move forward. Eventually, you see that you also need to start thinking about process a little bit. You need to think about the larger context and goals, and you move into this achiever mindset. And then now people are changing the language a bit, but you move into uh, autonomous or reframing. There's a number of names for it. But you start to get into post-conventional. These earlier stages are more the conventional mindset. Then you move into post-conventional, where they will tend to start to have, you could even say, a postmodern mindset. They understand, ah, people's perspective depends upon their context. You know, what they see depends upon where they're looking from. Mm. People don't become aware of that till these later stages. And then you can start to facilitate processes of reframing people's meaning to help them see a bigger picture. So the transformational leadership, the idea of raising the the morals and values of followers is very much a reframing type of process, helping people address questions and deconstruct their values and everything and reconstruct them in a higher level. And then you get strategist and construct aware and all those kind of later stages where a lot of what's going on is you start to see, oh, even the way we talk about things is socially constructed and the way other people understand words isn't always the way I understand them. Yes. Yes, we have some shared meaning, but hmm, I can't always assume it. So as and when you can do that, then you can even have a kind of more robust, deeper kind of organizational process. So there's a study that uh, Bill Torbert and some colleagues did where they looked at 10 CEOs undertaking organizational transformations, and they looked at multi-year processes, and the success or failure was very clear, like a 0.98 correlation between the success of the transformation and the developmental stage they were at. The ones at the conventional stages couldn't make those kind of transformations happen. The ones at the post-conventional stages were able to do that multiple times. So that's the ego development line. But there's a whole other lineage of developmental thinking. And I go into this because we've covered all these in the book. So we kind of go, we've got the Keegan Strand. We've got the Bill Torbert, Levenger, mm-hmm. you know, Piaget Keegan, Levenger, Torbert, Susan Cook-Greuter. Uh, Terry O'Fallon, I should mention, is in there too. She's built on Suzanne's work and has a a model that's evolved from there. Okay. And then this third strand. Great. Okay. Yeah. And the third one comes from Lawrence Kohlberg and a man named Kurt Fisher, someone named Michael Commons, who was also a student of Kohlberg's, who said, hmm, there's all these descriptive models. People have observed things and then tried to describe and make sense of that. But what is a theoretical model as a foundation of this? What what is actually going on? And he developed this model of hierarchical complexity to try and understand what's going on. Fisher, in a similar parallel way, had this dynamic skill theory. And, And what Fisher did that I thought was quite interesting was he took Piaget's notions of the development of our meaning making And he combined that with behaviorism's notions of how does the environment operate on us? Mm. How does the context affect our performance? And how does the dynamic intersection of these support the building of skills? And so we're looking at skills in particular here. And the way this builds up is we have these infant reflexes, like we said, then you get into sensory motor skills, then you get into representations in language. As a simple example, the word truth, when we think, oh, it means whatever, right? We have all sorts of associations with the word truth. But when we see it first being used, it tends to represent a one-to-one correspondence between something physical and a statement about it. It's connecting two representations. This is a microphone. This is a table. That's the truth, <laughs> yes. right? It's very concrete. Yeah. But you've got to realize that as a five-year-old or six-year-old, 
that's how the word truth makes sense to them. Yep. But then you start building on that root conception. And then you say, but that's not the truth. Or that's really the truth. And you start to build a system of these representations. And it's truth when, and you, you build these up. And at a certain point, you go beyond representations to an abstraction. And the notion of being truthful is an abstract concept, just like we talked about algebra in relation to mathematics. Sure. Being truthful is has many instances of truth or not truth or truth when, so you can generalize it. And then you can build that up, finding the truth, the whole truth. And you can start to take two abstractions and talk about the ugly truth or a grain of truth. Mm. So you build up conceptual tools that allow you to do work in terms of the thinking you're doing. And so Theo Dawson, who you had on not so long ago, we've worked with her a lot to try and understand how can we help leaders build the thinking tools they need to do the kind of knowledge work they're asked to do. So that's the strand she's coming out of. I didn't yes. know this. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Because I have not explored Kurt Fisher. I have not explored this, I guess we could call it dimension or this this orientation to the topic of adult development, right? No, it's it's less known. But in the history of developmental theory article you'll put in the notes, I devote about four pages at the end to elaborating Kurt Fisher's work. And he has some colleagues he's worked with, like Mike Mascolo, who we were with in the ILA. But the implications of that for leadership, I, I see very clearly having worked with these kind of tools is, for instance, I did a presentation on this for the Society for Organizational Learning in Norway. And, you know, Peter Senge had presented. And then I showed this. And I said, well, the thing is that this linear thinking, if then, where you can take two abstractions and hold them at once and connect them, that's where the majority of people are thinking. But what Senge is doing is asking people to combine many abstractions and look at the relationships between them in very complex ways. Yes, That's not what everybody's doing. And this guy came and says, wow, now we see we're trying to implement a learning organization. We give people all these ideas and they go off and they do something else. And we wondered why. And now I understand because they have to take it down to what they can operationalize. And so what this kind of skill theory gives us is a way to understand what people can perform, what they can actually do, and how we can support the development of that, because we can get more granular about what they're able to do. Well, and I just loved her definition of a skill, something you can practice. Right. Just so beautiful. Simple, easy. Boom. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. And of course, there are there are more rich definitions. So I think of it also as it's a way to regulate any kind of cognitive function and cognitive meaning, um, sensory motor, emotional thought form, being able to regulate the performance of any of those is a skill. So in these conversations that we're about to have with authors, you can really put them in one of three buckets, or we can put them in one of three buckets. We're going to have kind of a Keegan strain, we might have a Bill Torbert strain, and then we might have this Theo Dawson, Kurt Fisher strain. So listeners, as they're listening, they can start trying to hang on to those life preservers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I could, ready. Give, I could just give a little overview of that, for sure. instance. So um, Chuck Paulus and John McGuire in their chapter used primarily the ego development model. Um, Which is Torbert. David, yeah, yeah. And David McCallum uses that. Aidan Harney uses that, but also does something else with it. Abigail Linham and Jeff Fitch in their chapter use Terry O'Fallon's model, but they're all coming from this notion of how the ego or self develops. Then Harriet Rasmussen and Mohammed Rai 
they take Keegan's model specifically and apply it to trust. How Mm. does trust evolve in terms of our subject-object relations? And how do we start to work with that to enable us to understand what people value and what creates trust for people through these different developmental stages? My own chapter and one of the other ones uses Kurt Fisher and Lectica. There's also strand we haven't talked about yet that's a little different. Michael Basich's work on dialectical thinking and Otto Lasky's work. Eva Verdella goes into that. And this is kind of taking a, a layer and giving it another name and talking about it. And we'll learn more about that when we hear hers. But there's a series of models. And if I step back then, part of my intention with this book, and I really had two audiences in mind when I conceptualize this. One is the existing community of researchers in adult development and in or consultants in adult development and leadership. And there's a number of a growing number of consultancies that are actually using these models in practice. And I wanted to help these people expand their horizons. You may be using this model, but look, there's three or four others here that you might want to be aware of or think of or know a little bit more about at least. It's the kind of existing community to broaden and deepen it. But the larger community of leadership scholars, practitioners who are maybe peripherally aware of it or not aware of it, I wanted to expose them and say, There is a robust set of work going on in understanding, applying, and researching how these concepts are actually impacting leadership. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and there's some some interesting studies. I mean, you'd mentioned Carl Kuhnert and Keith Eigel. A lot of Carl Kuhnert's work, he, CCL, you know, there's there's a, there's pockets of some of this that have at least shown indications that people at these more advanced levels, uh, meaning making systems, are more effective in these leadership roles, right? Yeah. That it's a that it's one important component, not not the. We haven't uh, found the silver bullet, Jonathan, unless you strongly feel otherwise. It, it's not the, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. A very important. It's a corner. Well. <laughs> And, and so yes, and, and what I want to, well, no, what I want to emphasize is it's true that it's one strong consideration or, or influence. Yep, and that that is primarily, you know, what is the impact of the leader and the leader self. But of course, there's the context the leader's in, the larger. There's many other factors that that influence performance. The other thing that I want to really emphasize and that we'll see as we talk to the different authors and explore their chapters and work is that there is much more nuance and granularity and robustness behind these models. Now I've presented a very kind of quick overview of these things, but the actual kind of depth of detailed application and knowledge and implications of it is much richer. And it's not near so simplistic as we might present it here that yes higher is always better well being fit for purpose is actually more important wow what is the level of challenge or issue that you're facing and what is the level of your individual and collective thinking around it so it's not just up to one individual it's how can you help a team think together more intelligently rather than less intelligently. And that's there's a leadership component in facilitating that and enabling that. But there's also something about the what is it death of Superman and the birth of the Avengers, this notion of leadership teams where everybody contributes some component of it and everybody has shadows and challenges that they need to work through as well. Well, and there may be times where someone who, again, this goes back to to Kuhnert and Lewis, I think that was 87, somewhere around there. There there may be times where someone who's at a a stage four trying to speak to an audience of stage two or three, uh, they might come off as the audience doesn't understand what they're saying. (laughs) Well, many people found Obama very difficult to understand. 
because he and I, I've, I listened to his inaug- first inauguration speech. You know, I could hear he was touching like five different value systems in one paragraph, speaking to all, right? But for some people, it's like, well, he's wishy-washy or flip-flopping or something, you know. No, he's trying to lay out all the considerations he sees, but that's immensely complex and overwhelming for people who want the leader to provide the answer. Mm, Well said. Jonathan, we need to wind down. I think for today, that's a good primer, but I'm going to place your paper in the show notes. So listeners, when you go on this adventure with us, you have a primer. And I think I want to reinforce another thing, Jonathan, that you said that was so important that we probably flew at about 40 to 50,000 feet today, right? Each of these are worlds in and of themselves. And I think for scholars and practitioners, there's a really nice opportunity to build awareness and to come along this adventure with us and learn. We are going to, with each of these authors, try and stay kind of in the middle of the pool. We're not going to be in the shallow end. We're not going to try and take you to the deep end, but we're going to try and stay in the middle of the pool where where our feet are just barely touching. <laughs> that's That's where we're going to try and exist. So listeners, provide us with feedback and let us know what you think because we really value your opinion. Jonathan, I always close out with this question. What have you been listening to streaming? What's caught your attention in recent times? I know you still haven't watched in and of itself. I know. I know. It's on the list. (laughs) Um, I have been reading Daniel Kahneman's Noise, my current reading. I also started Matt's Alveson's The Triumph of Emptiness. Okay. A great analysis of the way things like grandiosity pumping everything up without substance and creating illusions and having mass consumption that's not ever kind of enough how all these things are symptoms of some deeper sense of emptiness okay Um, but the thing that was most interesting for me to read that's related to skill theory i've read a lot of neuroscience and neuroscience and learning lately very popular book dan coyle's the talent code okay how does myelination of neurons basically speed up and make the, them more efficient so that as you have a specific form of deep practice, you get ignited for the motivation to do that and you're emulating and noticing what it should look like and what you're doing and you're so focused on it that you actually practice deeply how does that actually build skill neurologically in the brain? Dan Coyle's right here in Cleveland, Ohio. So maybe you and I can have a conversation with him after this series is done. We'll do that in 2023. Can go for <laughs> that, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks for jumping into this adventure with me. And we're going to have a lot of fun. So I appreciate your time today. Be well, sir. Thanks for the good work you do. Thanks for providing a landscape for us. I think I learned today and I very, very much appreciate that. Thanks for inviting me to go on this adventure and, and you know, being willing to have me come along as the uh, co-pilot here for the next few episodes. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that opportunity to try and emulate your skill in the interviewing process. <laughs> well, It's going to be a good time and we're going to have fun and we're going to learn in the process. Okay, be well. For each of these episodes that we're doing in this series, we are going to do some reflection like I often do at the end of an episode. But this time I'm going to include Jonathan. And it's really, really important for us to get his perspective as he listened back on some of these episodes. And ironically, the first one was his own episode. So Jonathan... What are some key points that you took from you? <laughs> well, yes, exactly, Scott. So this is my first uh, thought, and I, I've got a blog post that we can put a link to here that I wrote after listening to all of these to reflect on this as a whole. And and I noted, you know, it's not often I record myself and listen back. <laughs> so this was a bit strange. But there there are a couple things that actually kind of did stand out for me, and it was actually helpful hearing myself rather than just talking stream of consciousness. So one is that this has been a really long journey in terms of weaving 
and the step of legitimizing kind of academic research in the field of adult development and leadership. It, it's really been a long, slow, step-by-step process. So that, that was one point. Another is that the notions of growth, maturity, development, this is a perennial concept. Hmm. We can see it in all types of cultures and societies in different forms if you kind of take that lens and look and notice it. So I actually just listened to a philosophy podcast about Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I totally saw the same thing suddenly. So it's it's a perennial concept. The other is that we all have this kind of everyday experience of many facets of development. And what these theories and models do is give us a language to make distinctions, to make it explicit. And when we make it an object and explicit, then we start to be able to work with it in a different way. Yes. The other thing that stood out is that there are many different strands of research that illuminate different angles or facets of development. It's not just that adult development is a theory. It's a body of theories that have been developing and emerging in parallel, sometimes intersecting with each other, sometimes independent of each other. One more thing was that I thought that the concept that's most important to come across is to get away from the notion that higher is better and notice that being fit for purpose is really what's important here is, you know, what is the challenge or task in front of us? And do we have the tools and resources to really meet it in a good way? Hmm. And then the last thing I noticed, because you had mentioned this in there, is I did watch in and of itself. Good. What'd you think? I thought it was amazing. Good. Yeah, I, I really, I had to sit and reflect on it a lot. I haven't watched it again or anything, but I, I really see why you have been speaking about it on a number of the podcasts earlier. <laughs> the other quick thing I'll mention is I am up to date. I have listened to all your podcasts. Oh, wow. Well, you are that person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I've listened into the future even. <laughs> exactly. You are that person in the world as well. <laughs> Jonathan, I am excited to continue our conversations. Uh, for listeners, thanks as always for checking in. We really, really appreciate it. More to come, more to come with Jonathan Reams and Scott Allen. Adult development and leadership, that intersection. And if you haven't watched it, check out In and of itself. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.